Advertising Week is proud to present Great Minds, People, and Culture, a podcast dedicated to exploring the art of intentional leadership during times of change. The goal of Great Minds, People, and Culture is to provide our audience with practical strategies, reliable data, and tangible advice as we look to empower leaders seeking to make a positive impact. Each 30-minute episode of People and Culture is a deep dive into the intricacies of effective leadership, featuring insightful conversations with experts and thought leaders. Great Minds People and Culture premieres September 2023 and will be available through your podcast store of choice and at advertisingweek.com. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Daniel McCarthy. Daniel is in the great state of Texas in the fabulous city of Fort Worth, one of my favorite places. He is the CEO and founder of FM, which is sort of an umbrella, a family of companies uh, that we're going to talk about and dig into it. They're doing some incredibly progressive work. We're going to touch base on a lot of things. AI being one of them, uh, one of the newest, most exciting things coming out of FM, which is stills. So Daniel, I'd love to start by talking about what it's like to come from a large family. I know you said your uh, dad had a lot of siblings in the area, a lot of aunts and uncles around, and uh, I come from a relatively small family. That shapes you. Talk about how being part of a large family has really helped you, helped shape you as a founder and a CEO. And I know it's an unusual place to start, but I thought it might be kind of an interesting jumping off point for our conversation. I've never actually thought about it. My dad did grow up with eight brothers and sisters. His father was in the Air Force, moved around a lot. They planted in Fort Worth. So every weekend, I feel like I was with 10, 15, 20 people. You know, every time we would do a family reunion, which was quite often somehow some way there'd be 30 40 people around all the time and i was just kind of in the mix i don't know i think it's funny thinking about it because i I think as a child i grew up loving gatherings and loving and, and kind of having this aspiration to host gatherings and create experiences you know i don't know how much that translates to work other than being a ceo now and we do gatherings literally right now this evening we're hosting a huge event for kind of the creative community and as you say that it kind of makes me think about how much of that in me came from my childhood i think the other thing for me was i grew up in fort worth i planted the company in fort worth i never really moved i was kind of a homebody and was planning on going to nashville for for school and kind of last minute decided to stick around i think doing that going to school here in in texas and then and then launching the company here you know a lot of people our first brand was music and a lot of people think we're either in nashville or la um but because all of our brands are online and everything is digital really it kind of i feel like we have the upper hand because we we started the kind of remote culture work from anywhere long before the world did i guess yeah, I've never really thought about how growing up around a ton of people all the time really shaped me, but I do think it had an impact. Uh, great, great, great answer. So let's sort of stay where we are in, in general terms and talk a little bit about Texas. Texas is different 
than the rest of America. There's only one state that calls itself a republic, and that's your home state of Texas. There's an independent spirit, an entrepreneurial spirit, a can-do spirit, an independent spirit that really weaves itself through the state and through Texans. Talk about Texas a little bit and uh, Fort Worth, which I think is a really hip. Austin gets a lot of the good PR, but there's a lot of you know tech-focused, a lot of young energy in Fort Worth as, as the city and state has sort of evolved past just an oil-based economy. I think Fort Worth has kind of had this emerging artistic, creative growth over the last five or 10 years. It's kind of come into its own. It's hot as hell. It's probably 108 degrees right now while I'm talking. You know, we have on our leadership team, I've got a VP from New York, a VP from London. I've had some people that have considered relocating to Texas. And it's like, you know, they've talked about bringing their family here to kind of try it out. And I'm like, listen, just don't do it in August. Your family will revolt if you come during August. Austin has kind of gotten the credit for being the creative, weird crowd. We have a little mini Austin near us in Denton. For a long time, it was like really, it's kind of, it's kind of Texafornia now. Since the pandemic, I mean, it's like every other person I meet is from the coasts. And a lot of companies are relocating here. It's a lot different now than it was 10 years ago. It's pretty, it's a pretty large melting pot of people moving here from the coasts. I mean, and, you know, we have DFW airport that's international, so that's nice, right? It's three hours to each coast. You don't really realize how much that makes a big difference until you've been in New York flying to LA and you're, you know, you're taking these super long flights. It, it is pretty meaningful to be in the middle of the country. Yeah, no, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about FM and I love the brand positioning about putting creative first. Talk about the early idea. This is, you're not a new kid. You've been around for a while. Give us sort of the FM origin story, Daniel. So out of college, I became a graphic designer at an ad agency and uh, kind of worked my way up to being the creative director of a small agency. Uh, left that and started our own probably in like 2009, 2010 started their own agency, did that for a few years. And it was kind of at the beginning of like, this is when YouTube was kind of exclusively funny videos and cat videos. Vimeo was kind of emerging. Um, Canon had come out with this camera called the uh, 5D Mark II, which, which put like cinema-like capabilities in the hands of every photographer. So there's all these technology advances happening you know, everyone wants a video. So we really, we launched our agency. Uh, it was more of a creative agency, designers and filmmakers. And um, I thought based off of my my past that we were going to be doing a lot of branding work. And every time I would get into a meeting, it was like, hey, can you make us a film? Can you make us a video? Hey, can you make, you know, it sounds, it sounds so like antiquated now, but everybody was like, we want a video for our homepage, you know? Can you do that? And you're like, uh, yeah, we, yes, we can do that. When you're starting a business, you just say yes to everything and figure it out later. And then kind of a year in, we realized we were more of a production company than we were an agency because 60, 70% of our revenue was coming from this video work. And I felt like we were getting, we were getting pretty good at it. And I felt like I could control, it felt like I could control every aspect except the music. Like I could control the lighting, the talent, the casting, the directing. And then we kept coming up to this barrier, which was like, 
we're putting all this effort in, we're making a great commercial, we have a decent budget, but the music is the music that we have available to us is awful. You know, it was just kind of cheesy production music. And I felt like the world of music licensing hadn't caught up to the technology advances that were happening visually. So that was kind of when I was like, okay, we have some friends in Nashville. I, I knew a band manager at the time. I knew some artists. So I just started reaching out to artists I knew and asking like, hey, would you send me your latest record without vocals? Just send me the instrumentals. And uh, if I use the music, you know, I'll send you a contract and I'll pay you some money. And I, I remember at the time I had gotten a quote from a production music library. We were doing a big project for TCU, which is a big university in town. And I'd gotten a quote from, I think it was Killer Tracks. And it was like $1,500 a song for use digitally, you know, and then we were probably going to use 10 or 15 songs. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. You know, the songs are, the songs are cheesy. Everything, you know, it's hokey. Surely there is an independent musician out there that is phenomenal at their craft that would happily take $1,500 a song, you know? I mean, this, this, I mean, it could pay for their next record, you know, it could pay for their mortgage for two or three months. So I, I found an artist that I liked for the project. We used his music. We paid him $1,500 a song. He was thrilled. The client was thrilled. I felt like the music matched the emotion of what we were creating. And so that was kind of like the birth point of music, but we were like, this, this is like, this is our future. You know, we need to basically, so we, we shifted our focus we spent a year building music bed. We signed 35 independent artists and we launched the brand in 2012 and uh, we sold the advertising agency and we went all in on music and it, it took off. It was kind of this like perfect. I think if you ask any entrepreneur how something blew up, there's a lot of hard work. There's some innovation, there's some vision, but then there's like, I feel like there's always like a, some sort of miracle moment like there's some sort of like well this one thing or these two things happened at the right time and so we launched music bed and four months after we launched music bed two gigantic like highly influential wedding filmmakers got sued by all the major record labels for using uh copyrighted music in their films there was one wedding filmmaker in particular that filmed Tony Romo's wedding video it had a Coldplay song on it and it ended up on ESPN.com and the labels kind of pounced and it basically started this tidal wave throughout the entire film, like independent filmmaking community that was like, Oh shit, time out. Like we can't be stealing music anymore. Cause this, it's like, it's, it's hard to remember the days without content ID and like all of the technology that would catch you, you know, if you were doing something wrong, like this was, this was the wild west. So it was like, it was an honor system and it kind of all hit at the same time where all these filmmakers were like, oh my gosh, like we can't jeopardize our entire business for using illegal music. And that happened. We doubled revenue overnight and then it kind of just snowballed from 2012 to like 2018, really. And we just at, you know, we went from. 35 musicians to 1500 and kind of like grew into like the the most relevant source of you know authentic indie musicians for your film 
And so I think, you know, so that's a really, really long answer to that question. But that was kind of the birth of, you know, FM didn't come until later. So the first brand was Musicbed. And um, that was kind of the birth of that. Great, great story. You touched on a couple things that I'd love to dig into a little bit. And one of them is how technology advanced and democratized. You referred to photography and visual imagery, but also true of recording, distribution. And Daniel, you have real perspective. 2009, that was a couple of years after YouTube launched. YouTube was 2007. You know, it was really early days for where the industry has, you know, come in the period since then. Talk about perspective on democratization of technology and the role that that has played in the evolution of the business, the evolution and birth of Musicbed, which you just shared with us. And as we start to, you know, sort of build the FM narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think storytelling, you know, photography was first. You know, it's interesting because when we could talk about AI later, but it's like AI feels like it's attacking photo world first, you know, like the still imagery. And so when you think about digital, it really happened the same way with with digital cameras. It, it kind of attacked photo first, you know, it was like we had digital cameras and music was kind of on its own journey at the same time with Pro Tools. And like it was all happening, like as we kind of walk as we walked into this century, really, where it was cheaper and easier to make a great record from a musician standpoint. It was cheaper and easier to to take a great photo. And then, you know, as we kind of roll into 08, 09, uh, maybe a little earlier than that, it started to become a lot cheaper and easier to make films. I mean, really still in the early 2000s, filmmaking, like the art of making a great film uh, was still very, very expensive. And the amount of people in the world doing it well was very small. So as you mentioned, YouTube comes out in 07, and we see kind of this like emergence of the prosumer storyteller, kind of like the freelance storyteller, and it kind of manifests itself in small little video clips and funny videos and, um, you know, kind of crappy versions of, of what we have today. And then, you know, really, and like, and I don't know that Canon gets a lot of credit for this, but I think when Canon released the 5D Mark II, they allowed that still camera to shoot. And I think it was, I want to, I want to say it was like 15 minutes at a time. Maybe it could have been seven or eight minutes at a time. There was time limits on it. Um, but what it allowed it to do is create film with shallow depth of field that looked like cinema. So before that you had, we were all using like Panasonic cameras and we were attaching these, like we were attaching still, there was a company called Red Rock Micro back in the, there was all these like random companies that would allow you to attach a photo lens to a, to a video camera to create depth of field. And you were losing a lot of light and it, you know, it was crappy. A lot of them, you were shooting them upside down and you had to flip it in post. And we were doing all these like kind of rigged ways to, to create depth of field and a cinema look. And Canon comes out with this camera and it really, if you think about the amount of photographers in the space shooting digitally versus the amount of filmmakers in the space, I mean, I don't know what it was, but it had to have been 10 X, 20 X. I mean, everybody had a digital camera. And so overnight, 
the filmmaking industry just kind of exploded because and, and it really and it really was like it was it was uh it really was driven by tech because all of a sudden i had this you know thirty five hundred dollar camera in my hands and i go in my backyard and you start shooting with it and your kids running around playing in the pool or something and you're like oh my gosh you know and then you go you want you put it on your computer and you're like this looks like a movie you know and then you start dreaming about what you could do with that and then and it all kind of started happening at once so previously to that the music that you heard on movies and tv shows it was really controlled by music supervisors which some people listening to this may not even know what a music supervisor is they still exist they're still placing music on tv shows today and you're talking about the majority of ads films shows that you saw in 2005, 2006, the music on those things were controlled by like 500 people, you know, in the world, like literally, you know, 5,000 people. I mean, you're, you're talking about a super small handful of people controlling what music is going on the video. And as soon as this technology bubble like just exploded, now all of a sudden you have 22-year-olds and 28-year-olds and 32-year-olds and 15-year-olds making movies and picking music for themselves, that's kind of where the like illegal usage exploded as well. Because the music, music supervisors went to school, man. They know they know the rules. That 17-year-old kid with a video camera has no idea that he can't use a Coldplay song and upload it to the internet. Like, why not, you know? So it kind of all happened at the same time. And I just think, you know, we, we really watched over a period of years this just aggressive ramp up of millions of creatives you know, deciding overnight, like, I want to be a filmmaker. And so it just like, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of crazy to think back on it. You know, now we're so used to it now, like everybody's got a camera, everybody's shooting video, everybody's uploading content, but it really like, it really emerged really fast. It, it sure did. And, and you're reminding me of a conversation we had on stage years ago with the filmmaker and he, he does some work in front of the camera as well. Ed Burns, who's sort of a beloved New York, you know, filmmaker character and great storyteller. And he talked years ago, around the same time as Music Bed started, uh, about how technology and cameras in particular and editing equipment and uh, editing software had gone from being something where there was an extraordinarily high barrier to entry to something where there was a really low barrier to entry. And uh, I, I love that conversation. So music bed is where it starts. But as we look at the evolution of FM, you've got a family of five brands working with creatives uh, in film and sync rights. We talked a little about photo imagery. I also want to talk about trust, but talk about that evolution of FM from music bed where you began into what it is today, which is really quite a story, Daniel. So I think the basic foundational thought behind Musicbed is the same for all the brands, which is I felt like there was tens of thousands of creatives out there that were creating exceptional work um, that should be available for use by other creatives. They just was, there was no avenue to make it available. Um, you know, I, I felt like I'm like, there's, there's just, 
you know, Bandcamp was out and SoundCloud was out and there was all these, it was like, you could, you could find amazing music, but you couldn't figure out how to get permission to use it. Um, and I just, you know, I just felt like there was this, like, there was this like missing link, this missing brokerage between the people making great work, ads, TV shows, films, YouTube videos, wedding films, like whatever it was that they were making. And the artists that were in their studios and out, you know, on the streets making great content that could be used in that media. And I just felt like it was like, they don't, they don't know each other. And if they knew each other, they could utilize each other and they could make money and it could be this community that's driving revenue for both of them. Because I felt like, you know, growing up as a creative and I think every artist, every creative has had this moment at least once in their life where someone's like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And you're like, I want to be a musician or, you know, I, I want to be in film, you know? And they're like, ah, I pick something serious. You know, <laughs> it's like, like, I ah, maybe you should be a banker, you know, like every, every creative has had their dreams crushed at least once in their childhood, you know, where it's just like, that's just, Hey, listen, that's just not going to work. You know, you just can't make a money. You just can't make a living being an artist and i just felt like that's a lie you know like that that it 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 doesn't you can't because we haven't figured it out yet um for a lot of people and so you know when we started music bed it was like there's all these musicians that deserve to be making a living doing the thing they are best at that's what i felt like the empathetic kind of the empathetic mind for me was there's all these people in the world who are the their highest and best talent is creating art but instead they're a teacher but instead they're in real estate but instead they're in you know because it's like they they just I can't figure out what to do with this thing that I'm best at and so you know that's what that was the basis of music bed um and we and we saw it come to fruition but I always felt like you know there's there's multiple pillars of visual storytelling there's music there's film um, and then there's still imagery. And, you know, we felt like the natural evolution would be to go film second and then, and then photo third. And we can kind of talk about that, but, you know, basically we launched music bed five years later, it was up and rolling and, and healthy. And we felt like we, we never took any funding along the way. So, so it was kind of a natural organic growth the whole time. I think we could have done it faster had we have taken funding, but, we also would have made more expensive mistakes along the way. So, you know, we, we launched film supply 2015 grew that to hundreds of thousands of clips, thousands of customers. And then about two years ago, started to walk down the journey of, okay, we've done film, we've launched music. We need to consider photo, um, and started that process. And then we, you, that actually launched last Tuesday. So stills.com last launched, uh, launched last Tuesday. Um, so far it's been going really, really well. And, uh, you know, it was always kind of the same, the same foundational mindset between all three of them, which is making relevant, authentic art available to creatives to use commercially. Um, with, and I think a lot of people say they do that, but you know, we've always music beds tagline early on was, you know, it when you hear it, I think you could kind of apply that to all three of the brands, you know, people are like, well, what's the difference? 
And you're like, well, uh, you'll know it when you see it, you know, you'll know it when you hear it, like you're going to have to get in and you're going to have to experience it because there is certain art and music and photo that gives you goosebumps that, that generates emotions. And then there's certain art that kind of leaves you leave feeling a little flat and no emotions at all. And, and, and we've aimed to curate a roster of art that creates emotion um, that allows creatives to tell better stories and communicate their visions um, with deeper emotion. If that, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And when, whether it's the audio medium, the visual medium, still or moving images when everything's working at its best evoking emotion is very much at the heart of all of those genres so at thirty thousand feet daniel what you're really talking about is something that transcends music and film and imagery it's creating an avenue for the independent creative community to do what they love to do to uh, share passion, if you will, but also to monetize that passion for that person working in a restaurant to pay their bills, as you said, who might be an extraordinarily talented composer or writer or photographer or filmmaker, but is unable financially to make it work, to put bread on the table. What you're really doing here in those genres where FM is playing is giving those independent creatives a pathway. That's part of a broader trend in the economy. And I think that also feeds to the evolution of technology and creating opportunities that 15 years ago just weren't there. I guess when it, when you boil it down, what I'm most proud of, I mean, obviously, like as the CEO, I have to keep the customers first, right? The buyers, right? I'm always thinking about our clients and what do they need and how should we price and how should we deliver to them? I think when you boil it down, what I am most proud of over the last over the last eleven years is that we've been able to pay. I think the last stat I saw was like a hundred and thirty million ish into the creative community. As an artist growing up, like as a musician and a creative growing up, I think the idea that we've been able to allow thousands of creatives to make this their full time job, our content team who's signing creatives all the time musicians, photographers, filmmakers. So I think there's pseudo counselors slash business consultants. So, you know, I think we do as much like training and educating and consulting, honestly, as we do curating of the content, because one thing that comes with the creative mind is uh, sometimes a lack of business sense or like this feeling, you know, you've that all the documentaries and conversations that have been had about art and commerce and kind of like, how do you, you know, the, the best artists, the most natural artists almost always feel like they're selling out when they make money with their art. Like it's this really strange, they just, it just doesn't feel right. I come, I kind of come from the stance of, if you can make a living doing what you love to do, that's the most fulfilled you'll ever be, you know? So we're always kind of coaching our, our contributors on how to honestly, how to run a business, how to create revenue, how to generate wealth and keep it, how to keep their business rolling. We really have kind of two client bases. We have buyers, but then we also have all of the artists that we represent that we also 
feel very responsible of to make sure that they, you know, they finish the race well and don't end up having a two or three year streak of revenue and then lose it all. Yeah. No, and you said it very well, you know, that there are, I'm sure there's more than this scientifically, but there are sort of two kinds ahead in my view, there's the creative brain and the business brain. And it's very rare that a creative brain is also a business brain and vice versa. Uh, when you find somebody who's got both skill sets, you know, they're sort of a, a unicorn, if you will. Let's talk about trust. I love what you're doing there, creating a funding mechanism, enabling filmmakers to really accomplish their greatest hopes and dreams. Let's hear the evolution story there of trust and sort of where it is today and, and your vision for it going forward, Daniel. In its purest form, it's just funding passion projects for filmmakers. We talk to filmmakers a lot about how to how to grow their careers, um, how to build their production companies, how to gain the clients that they want. And it's always the same. It's almost always the same story. Like every so often there's unicorns that maybe found a different way to, to accomplish it. It's usually the same story, which is if you want to shoot a certain type of film, if you want to make a certain type of commercial, you have to go first. Nobody is going to pay you to make that car ad or to make that documentary or to make that narrative film unless they have seen you do it before and they fell in love with it. Which means the barrier of entry to creating films may be cheap and the gear may be easier to accomplish, but the barrier entry to getting client work and getting the client work that you want or shooting the film that you want is still very complicated because you got to get out there and do it yourself and figure out how to make it happen, which probably means figuring out how to make a film that looks like you spent $300,000 and you've got to do it for 30, you know, or you got to do it for 50 and you got to get all your friends involved and call every favor you have in the book. What I started to notice over the last 12 years is that the trajectory of a filmmaker's career was directly connected to how quickly they could push out their passion projects. Because you could see these massive steps forward when they would release a passion project. Think of neighborhood film uh, company we do a lot of work with who released a film called The Cage. You know, Variable up in New York had released a film in India called Holy early on with Vimeo that got, got a staff pick. And I could like go production company by production company, filmmaker by filmmaker. Elliot Rausch released uh, a film early, early on that he shot that kind of launched him into his his career. And there's these huge moments where someone sees this film that you've made. They see the emotion that you've created. And inevitably, they're like, hey, can you do that for me? for this, for this thing. And so we saw it. And what I realized was the problem is that a lot of these filmmakers and production companies are just, they're honestly, they're just losing 15 years of their life because they're doing a passion project and they're riding the wave of that passion project for five or six or seven or eight years before they can figure out how to fund the next one. And so they kind of, they, they make a big leap and then they stall out for a pretty long period of time. And then they make a big leap and then they stall out. So we kind of started having this conversation internally of like, okay, if a filmmaker's career 
and trajectory is directly attached to how often they can put out their passion projects. Is there a way that we could speed it up? Like, like what if they could do the film that they wanted to do this year and then they could do another one in a year or two and then they could do another one in a year or two and, and, st- and their career gets progressed really quickly and then they start landing some bigger client work, you know. And so that really was kind of the basis behind trust was if we could help them fund their films a little bit faster, um, we could potentially see them, you know, cram 20 years of career growth into five. And so the reason why trust works like is because film supply exists. And so previously it's like if a short film and a seven or eight minute short film 12 minute short film is going to cost 30 or $40,000. There really is no market for that film. I mean, it's like, what are you going to do with it? You know, Netflix isn't buying it. You can't really sell it. Um, There's not a huge market outside of like free online streaming for short films. So it's kind of 50 or a hundred thousand dollars wasted. And you're just having to like, you're just having to write it off and consider it career growth. Because we have film supply, we can fund these films and then use use the footage from the films to license for other projects to create revenue that pays the film back. And so it, it gives us a bit of an, you know, it doesn't always work that way and it doesn't always pay off, but it gives us it gives us a way to license the full film, license clips from the film and kind of squeeze the sponge a little bit. And, and get as much out of it as we possibly can to help pay the film back while also allowing the filmmaker to take some pretty massive steps in their career. Such a good story. Talk about the response and how you're working with the brand community and the agency community. That's our core audience. So as we start to wrap here, Daniel, I'd love to sort of build a bridge from what you're doing across the family of FM companies and build that connection to the advertising and and marketing industry. I I think the, in the end, I mean, as a former creative director, not of a large advertising agency, but I think that in the end, an agency, an agency's job is to connect with an audience and to create emotion. I think we went through what I would consider the found footage scare of 2022, like whereas a business TikTok is emerging, vertical video is emerging. And all we've done for the last 11 years is like curate relevant, authentic, cinematic, beautiful, emotive content. And I felt like I was watching my life flash before my eyes because I'm like, if this is the shit that the world is going to, I don't know if we have a place here. <laughs> you know, like I'm like, if if everything is going to be selfie, found footage, TikTok, just mediocre content then i i maybe we need to maybe we need to just cash out you know what i mean like i kind of had this out of body experience in 2021 or two where i was like i just maybe it's just over you know and then this redeeming moment happened during the super bowl last year where the ad that that won best uh you know everyone kind of picked it as best was the purina ad and it's this dog and this own and it and it's like this beautifully shot cinematic commercial that makes you cry. And I'm like, thank God we haven't lost our souls, you know? And so I I think 
I think stylistically things are going to evolve and change. And we're even having to look at how do we evolve and change and stay current stylistically. But in the end, the advertiser's job is to connect emotionally with the brand's customer um, and tell a, tell a story that sticks because it's so noisy. It's more noisy than it's ever been from a content perspective. So you have to figure out how to cut through you have to figure out how to make your customers listen. You have to figure out how to connect emotionally. And I think foundationally, that's what all of our brands are built for and curated for is connecting emotionally, you know, audibly and visually with the customer. And I think when you even when you look at stills, it's like we're the last person to the party from a photo perspective. You know, I mean, I've had plenty of people be like, why photo? I mean, there's Getty, there's Shuttersock, there's Pond5, there's Unsplash, there's free photo. What you know, it's it's like, yes, but get on any of those platforms and tell me if you get goosebumps. Tell me if you can find something that really, really helps you connect deeply and get people to stop and look. And we felt like that was still a huge need in the market, even on the still side. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I I think it's just in the end, like we have aligned visions because we're trying to curate content that helps you tell stories. It, it was a great answer. And, and uh, I think you painted the picture really beautifully. So uh, be remiss not to touch on two things. One is the uh, evolution of AI. I think most are under the impression that AI is new. It's been around for a while. Yes. But it's suddenly uh, the flavor of the month at Baskin Robbins, if you will. So I'd love to talk about that and how that's impacting what you're doing at FM. And also, Daniel, be remiss not to get your perspective on the impacts and sort of crossover of technology and how things are made, viewed, distributed and uh, how the content industry has largely been ground to a halt over a disagreement on compensation for writers, directors, and now actors as well. And a lot of that, as you know, is fueled by technology and fundamental shift changes to the business. You know, an awful lot of the business has been operating off a business model, which I think you and I will both agree no longer exists. And that's really at the heart of the strike and the labor disputes that we're seeing now. So love to touch on AI, love to touch on your perspective on the current strike, and you can pick which one we go first. Gosh, two gigantic topics. I think in general, what we're seeing with the strike, what we're going to see with musicians, what we're going to see with any copyright holders as we move into AI, what we're going to continue to see as more and more and more and more content gets distributed um, is fundamentally as creatives or just any sort of intellectual property owner, we have been used to making more money on less content, more money with less views, more money. Just it's we, That's just what we've been used to. Bigger royalties, but less payouts. We're going to have to have a mindset shift where we realize we're going to make less money on more you know on on more content more distribution i think if you look at what happened with spotify 
right? Everybody hated. I mean, the whole the whole world, the whole music industry was against Spotify. Like, you're you're dropping the bottom out of the industry. You're gonna kill all of us. No one's gonna make any money. Spotify has now proven they've poured they've paid more out to the music industry than anyone ever made on CDs in a year. Um, but people had to come to grips with the fact that they were going to make let they weren't going to be selling CDs for $16 anymore. They weren't going to be selling a song for 99 cents anymore. You know, so it's just I I think you know, we're going to need some leaders in the creative industry that can get up and and connect and like connect with the creative enough for the creative to trust them and be like, "Listen, the future is going to be better, but you're going to have to help us get you there." Um, you know, fundamentally, I feel like that's just, you know, everybody's just trying to get their fair shake and, and, and they're trying to get their fair share of the model that they're used to. And the model that they're used to is just antiquated and, um, you know, and then which kind of leads you into AI, like what the heck is going to happen there. Right. And I think I have a couple of thoughts on AI one technology never truly delivers on the fear that the perceived fear that it kind of you know gives you at at first right so there's all this fear in the creative industry like it's going to just completely delete copywriters it's going to delete photographers graphic designers aren't going to even have a job anymore um you know then it's going to come after filmmakers i think to your point ai is not new uh we've been using ai to help us tag content we'll continue to use it to curate we'll start introducing it on our platforms to help you find content faster um there's a lot of tools we're working on right now that will make it easier for you to find i think though that there is going to be this extreme hunger eventually and i don't know how fast we get there but there will be this extreme hunger and a huge market and desirability for human made. Like they're just look at any other industry, coffee, right? I mean, it's like high altitude, like hand. And it's like, look at, I mean, meat, grass fed, organic, like in any industry, there, there's every industry begins to break into, you know, get kind of fragments into value brands, premium brands, luxury brands and i think the more we kind of saturate the world in ai content there's going to be a bit of a degeneration i think of the visuals like it's going to create a genre right so all this generative ai it's going to kind of begin to create a genre of itself and i just think there's going to be a hunger for human there's going to be a hunger for human created like prove to me that a human made this so i don't know i don't know how that evolves completely but i think I don't think AI is going to fully deliver on on kind of all of its fear promises. I guess you know it's promised a lot of fear, and I, and I don't think it's going to fully deliver on it. I think artists actually are going to find ways to utilize the tools and make them an even better creative. And I just think, in general, human beings were made to create, like we were made to make things. There's also going to be a bit of a revolt from the creative community but just like humans in general at some point that are like i still want to make something you know it's it's like i mean i, I we all kind of maybe felt it 
from a food perspective during the pandemic and we all go to quarantine, we door dash for three weeks and everyone's like, man, for, dude, I got to, I need to make my own food. You know, I'm going to get in the kitchen and make some bread, make some food. It's like, we just, we just can't, we can't as a human race go for very long without making something with our own hands, whether it's food, art, you know, gardening, whatever it is, woodworking, we, we just, it's just in us. Like we were made to create. I think what will end up happening, I don't think AI is a fad. It's definitely here to stay. It's going to impact our lives in many ways that we can't even imagine. But I don't believe that it takes over the human's ability to create and the human's desire to consume what another human has created. So we'll see how that manifests for our brands. Um, you know, what kind of premium or luxury tax gets put on something that a human made? I, you know, how does it look? Are the, it just, do things actually get tagged as AI created or human created? We'll see how that looks, but there will, there will for sure be a desire to consume human made content. Absolutely fantastic. What a great way to wrap clearly along that pathway, one way or another, there's going to be a reset of the business of the business around content creation and distribution and we'll see together daniel how that all unfolds but i can't thank you enough this was super interesting and uh thanks to your team for uh raising the opportunity to us and then came through nicole and uh delighted uh, to chat with you here today awesome thank you so much for having me you got it